0: Find something of value. Higher education community in South Africa on How central this humanity is. Welcome to the Academic Citizen. I'm your host Nosi Pomgomezulu. The week after I submitted my PhD dissertation, I took my driver's test three times in three days, and I failed each time. The written part that was a breeze but a uniformed traffic officer watching over my shoulder made me nervous and irrationally defiant i tend not to do well with authority the story i tell myself is that i don't need to learn how to drive no something something about my carbon footprint something something about living in a big city and being able to uber and use public transport Uh, but really i'm just terrified of failure watching productivity come resilience motivation videos i hear the dignified words of samuel beckett ever tried ever failed no matter try again fail again fail better these messages have almost got me convinced that failure is an innocuous set of learning experiences to be taken on the chin on the turbulent road to success here failure's bite is rendered toothless in the face of daring greatly yet We live in an age where epic fail is a common part of our lexicon. A significant part of social media is dedicated to failures rendered spectacular. The embarrassment of a mistake and the attendant humiliation is given exaggerated sense of importance. Oh, the terror. The terror. What will people say? It's just kind of been blown up in cyberspace. Schadenfreude experience of pleasure or self-satisfaction that comes from witnessing the failure of others is the proverbial bread and butter of tabloid news. Just a cursory glance at your Twitter timeline will show you how we seem to take great pleasure, guilty pleasure maybe, in this misanthropic game. The glee we feel at the misfortune of others due to their hubris or their incompetence is definitely not reciprocated when the tables are turned. We want our failures to be private affairs, treated with compassion, or at least a bit of empathy. In this episode, we're going to delve into this very human experience of failure, my least favourite thing, which in part is why I thought it was important to reflect upon it. Writing on failure, I've cycled through several drafts, terrified that I'm going to fail at the tasks I've set myself. Should I tell you how many times this recording has failed? 5. Do I let you in on the messy process of creating this podcast? The overthink? Is my voice popping? Oh my goodness, am I slurring? Surely I'm not slurring. Reading the literature on the physiological, the psychological, and the social implications of failure, I am stutter shook at my cognitive biases. I'm frustrated by my hubris of failed... I'm frustrated at that. We're going to keep that in. Here we go. While reading the literature on the physiological, psychological, and social implications of failure, I am stutter-shook at my cognitive biases. I'm frustrated by my hubris of failed ambition and remain tongue-tied trying to walk the fine line between vulnerability and exposure. Failure deeply troubles my sense of perception management. Does this failure make me look incompetent? Yikes. This makes sense. After all, failure is painful. I mean, Literally. As social creatures from an early age, our brains are very good at monitoring for perceived social threats. Experiments using functional magnetic resonance imaging scans, fMRI, have identified that an area of our brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, becomes active when we experience social distress. The ACC is also involved when we experience physical pain, and it looks like physical and social pain share some of the same circuitry in the brain. So when we say that rejection can hurt, it's because it can actually cause us to feel a type of pain. In 2017, the Journal of Behavioral Decision Making published a study that found that emotional responses to failure rather than cognitive ones are more effective at improving people's results. This sounds so counterintuitive, but Professors Nelson, Malcock, and Shiv found that people who produce cognitive responses to failure rather than emotional ones tend towards protecting themselves rather than focusing on self-improvement. Although it's unpleasant to feel uncomfortable about a mistake, bypassing the pain of failure is not ultimately an effective strategy if your goal is improvement. The decision-making strategist Annie Duke argues that smart people tend to struggle more with experiences of failure leaning more towards cognitive rather than emotional responses. Her work shows how smart people tend to be better at fooling themselves because they tend to be better at reworking the data from the experiences of failure in order to fit a more comfortable prior mental model of self. Smart people tend to intellectualize their failures and they're smart enough to know that they shouldn't sound biased. Her advice for getting around this confirmatory style of thought is to be in a good group in this way you learn how to be curious about the pain of failure instead of explaining it away see you don't have to believe let alone befriend the unpleasant thoughts that accompany failure but acknowledging that they exist is half the battle won and reframing an experience learning to stay with the troubling feelings by feeling them instead of rationalizing them or suppressing them feels quite antithetical to the picture of the academic citizen but who is this academic citizen that i'm imagining students in my class i'm not really that concerned if they struggle if they fail on their way towards a task in fact i applaud it who am i thinking of is it my colleagues maybe it's you yes you you with your research grant your nrf rating your impending promotion and successful book that seamlessly traverses abstract theory with gravitas and enough levity to render it accessible and commercially successful you With your infallible regular writing practice, the picture of scholarly productivity and rigor. You, the dignified academic citizen, at least what I project onto you. I envy you. The you who can turn lemons into lemonade and whose success feels inevitable. It feels embarrassing to admit that I envy how your form fits your function. This envy feels uncollegial at best and certainly cringe at worst throwback to season six episode one where we talk about envy before you offer me any platitudes about imposter syndrome i would kindly ask you to cease and desist. i hate the concept of imposter syndrome it implies this privatization and pathologization of fear after all imposter suggests the existence of an authentic or legitimate form and i dear listener have never been one to take norms as decrees but i do understand that there are always stakes at play if you perceive failure as a threat to something important to you, your reputation, your job security, your dignity, if you believe failure puts you at risk, you're likely to experience distress and that distress is totally understandable. The cousin to imposter syndrome is this other cognitive bias, the stunning Kruger effect, where people with low ability, low expertise, and low experience regarding a task or an area of knowledge tend to overestimate their ability or their knowledge. We want the imposter to dust themselves off from their languishing as underdogs and rise to the occasion, showing up the mediocrity of the delusional Dunning-Kruger person. Failure, in many ways, is really just not an option in the stories we tell. I've been fascinated by quitlit for a long time. Reading about people who leave their academic jobs in pursuit of alternative careers outside the academy is a titillating read for me. The overwhelming advice seems to be that failure is in fact an option, that sometimes perseverance is the foolhardy choice. Folks who pen Quitlet advise against the sunk cost fallacy, but it is difficult to let go of personal attachment to a project, especially if one has invested heavily in its success. In The Queer Art of Failure, Jack Hubbelstam proposes Low Theory as a way to deconstruct the normative modes of thought that have established uniform societal definitions of success and failure. Instead of seeing failure as a dysfunction, Hubbelstam recasts failure as a portal, opening up more creative ways of thinking and existing in the world. This is not simply a rebranding of failure as Alt Success. Rather, like Stuart Hall, Habermas takes seriously the importance of reimagining what we call ideal performance in the first place. Personal and professional failure are an unavoidable component of life. Yet, in our institutions and social structures of value, certain bodies, economic positionings, neurotypical dispositions seem to create particular buffers or fail-safes for some more than others. This aversion to loss is deeply political. Failing safely ideally shouldn't be a privilege of a few who are presumed to be always and already competent. In our last episode, Professor Ikani examined breathing as a modality of knowledge, taking us on a journey from diving expeditions to the horrors of the respiratory pandemic we are still facing and the air we breathe in our cities The episode on breath explored recipes for disaster management, and so it is only fitting that in this episode we follow up with an examination of failure. So let's take a deep breath here. And savor the erudite insight of the great Tony Morrison, who says that failure is information, a necessary diagnostic tool that helps us figure out what is and is not working. In this episode, we're going to mine this data to try and find and understand the affective cartographies of failure. Join me as we traverse the choppy waters of success with advocate Tato Tweba, asking what failure means when you are already presumed to be successful. We ask who gets to fail with astrophysicist Dr. Stabile Kolwa, Unpacking the Enabling Conditions for Risk and Failure, we take a hard look at representation and narratives of success with media studies lecturer, Dr. DiMarco. Come with us. I'm Tato
1: Cueva. I'm from Maseru. I'm an advocate of the courts of Lesotho, I'm an artist, I practice here in Lesotho and I study for a PhD in law at the Faculty of Law in UWC in the Public Law Department. I think generally I'd say I'm interested in like society and the mechanics of society Like in law, I'm interested in like the relationship between the state and individuals. I've worked in a lot of unrelated research. This year I was working on a project on the impact of COVID on youths and did a lot of qualitative research for that. So field work and like just kind of being very anthropological. But I think that kind of work is the culmination of my interests and kind of where i draw parallels between like the different kind of things that i work with in art and law and yeah in social research basically
0: i'm very interested about your practice and your relationship to the legal fraternity i'm interested in why you left being an advocate of the courts of Lesotho, because that is, you know, I think for many people when they're thinking about success, that is like the pinnacle of success is here you are, young, gifted and black, and you're an advocate of the courts, and you decide to leave the legal Fraternity in that form. So maybe you could start by telling us, why did you leave?
1: I don't want it to sound like I left a long time ago. <laughs> I wouldn't even say I left. I don't necessarily leave things, but I left at the beginning of the pandemic or like lockdowns in 2020. And it's out of frustration. I think, especially for legal practice here at home, there's the kind of disillusionment. When I was in school, like throughout my whole school time, I've always been in debate, you know. So I've always kind of like, the compelling aspect of law, like convincing people of a particular perspective, a particular position, and also being compelled, you know, like arriving at a particular opinion because someone engaged me like on most of my doubts. So when I went into practice, I went into practice with like that energy of we're going to change the world (laughs) one argument at a time. But then it was very, like, procedural. There was a lot of emphasis placed on process, how you serve, how you address the court, how you dress, like, the theatrics of law. In my view, there was a lot of other things that concerned the legal Fraternity other than making substantive arguments. During the time that I was practicing, because I practiced for, like, six months from when I left Cape Town in 2019... And the whole time I didn't get to speak a case substantively, like it was postponements, like objections based on you should have served in this manner. And I get frustrated by that. I'm very bad at it. So yeah, it was frustrating me because I couldn't get to the
0: part that I'm interested in. What was like your process <laughs> of deciding to pivot away from, I guess, the courtroom with all its many rituals and procedural expectations like, I wanted to kind of get access into what were you thinking about in terms of, like, deciding to pivot? Because I think it's something that many people might find, like, overwhelming to even consider, like, leaving such a secure, clear pathway.
1: Maybe I should just say <laughs> I feel uncomfortable about calling myself an advocate because I didn't practice that long, right? So I think my time in practice would probably be a culmination of maybe two years at most. I practiced in 2014 when I came back from law school and then went to do my master's in 2015. And then I was in school until 2019 when I came back. So I was never really in it in terms of like practice every day. And maybe that's why it was difficult to get used to the logistical aspect of actually being able to appear in court and speak before a judge and make arguments and, you know get to the compelling part. But I think because I was coming from a more academic background where that's what you jump into, you make an argument right away. That alienated me even further from like caring about procedures and protocols and rituals and all the other airs about practice.
0: I find it really interesting how Tato thinks about these different spaces from the law school, the courtroom, and then being back in, I guess, the proverbial classroom of being a doctoral student and how she understands these different spaces and what they produce in her and her practice and her at least disposition towards failure.
1: In academia, it's kind of, I think, both in legal practice, because I feel the same way about legal practice that I do about school, like academia, which is that, and this is personal, I don't think this is like a general thinking on my part, but I don't enjoy the processes of those enclaves, the way I enjoy the process of making collages. I love also like the finished, because in school, My issue was the process. Like, that's what I failed, I think, (laughs) because the issue was how do you write? How do you cite? How do you make an argument? And for me, I'm not very academic. And, you know, like, I grew up very rurally. And I think the way that I process knowledge is that it kind of becomes part of my life as opposed to something that's archived in my mind that I can pull out. You know, like, whenever someone's like, oh, do I have this case? And I'm like, oh, yeah. It's how you deal with it, you know, like it's, for me, it changes my whole life, you know, like when something clicks, it changes my whole perspective, not just like a particular subject. So that was a difficult thing to communicate without paying homage to institutional things, you know, so I remember thinking my issue with this person, my supervisor at the time is the language. Barrier. Even though we're communicating in English, like this is a colored man in, from Cape Town who has a different experience of the English language that I had because when I had a Malawian person reading my work, they could get it because we have the same like English dialect, very British colonial, a little pompous, you know. And so my supervisor was always like, I don't understand why you won't just say it simply. And so that's what we were fighting about, how to write the English language. I didn't study English. (laughs) This is English from high school. (laughs) So (laughs) those were the things that I had to pay respect to that made me very impatient about getting to the point that I was getting to, which wasn't that big of a deal. (laughs) Anyway. So I think for academia and practice, I don't enjoy the processes of actually getting to communicating the idea that you have. Don't enjoy it.
0: I want to know about your early notions of success, where you get your sense of the narrative of what a successful person is.
1: Like in high school, there was like this big obsession with success, like academic success. And just generally, like, in my high school, they used to have, like, each year an inspirational figure. I'll just call it that. So there was this obsession with, like, I went to a girls' school. So, like, Margaret Thatcher-type success. And they would give you all these awards. Like, on awards day, your name would ring throughout the day so that all the other kids in the lower classes look at you and... They want to be like you. And when I was in high school in my last year, I was one of these inspirational figures. Even like the idea of being a lawyer. When I was young, I would say I want to be a lawyer, but I think it was my teachers who were like, yeah, you have to do law like in keeping with the momentum of like that high school model citizen type thing. So I think from like throughout high school like and throughout law school, there was always that thing at the back of my mind, like you can't fail, people are watching type thing. Maybe because I used to talk a lot, but my oldest sister was very clever. And because Los Angeles is a small country, people in my high school knew that. And they would say, oh, the twin sister's so clever. They're probably so clever. And then the whole school was like, oh, these kids are so clever. And then on began the pressure. And so it always felt like one had to go into that one had to step into that as opposed to like figuring out that this is my intellectual temperament, you know, like always panting. Because for me, I was like, "Mm, I don't feel very confident about these sessions, so I'm going to have to do really good so that at least I'm not very far from what these people are talking about. And that's kind of what happened also because when I was in dubs in this program that I was in, they would then select like one student to do a PhD. And it was kind of like high school once more where they're like, oh, Tato, this will be you. Even though I wasn't, I was like, maybe the fifth best student or whatever, like really meant like this is not even, I said this to you the first time we talked about this, it's not even like a so, an issue about self-confidence, like it's facts, it's reality. So I don't know, I think I've been keeping that momentum from high school until like maybe the 2017 when I started kind of slacking off on my PhD. And it was like, I need to feel what it's like to maybe disappoint, like what happens if I disappoint someone, like what shatters.
0: I'm really curious to learn more about your artistic practice and moving towards the creative space to articulate many of the concerns that you had, both as a practitioner of law and also as a doctoral student. I'm really curious to find out about the relationship between collage and your research interests.
1: So I was collaging before, like I thought about it seriously as something that can engage with bigger issues, you know, like more academic issues or even something that I could connect with my legal background. So like I used to have this app on my phone and it was just like something that I really enjoyed doing when I'm on the train from campus and I don't have wifi, I can just, you know. So when I get radicalized then in 2015 and I start writing my thesis, I thought very differently from my well-tempered master's thesis. I was really changed by this paper, by this law professor. His name is Paulo Ocheje, and he's a public law professor, I think somewhere in Canada, Last I checked. And he was writing this paper about corruption in Africa, and the paper is called When Law Fails. And he was talking about kind of like this Du Boisian idea of the like duality, like the fragmentation of a person in these systems, you know. But I think collage became easier because I realized that you can kind of make out an essay with one collage. Because in practice, the thing that was difficult to convince my supervisor was that to call international anti-corruption law colonial was a reach, and that's because of all the rigor that's required in making a statement like that about in law generally. The Mm -hmm. rigor it would require, that, that would be like if I had to make that argument in court, the rigor it would require for someone to agree with me, even if they do agree with me, is too labor intensive for me because we can all see it. So, yeah, I didn't like to, like, for example, I'm like, where are you going to find the chat between the World Bank and the IMF when they said we want to use this policy as a way to induce like compliance with structural adjustment, for example? Because the way I see it, that is kind of what drove international lawyers. You want money to pay your loans? You have to say this. And then people said this, and now we have this law that's kind of like not working.
0: Tato's work in collage allows her to engage with the messy and contradictory aspects of negotiating between local and international law. Freeing herself from the strictures and rituals of what it means to succeed in making an argument in written text, she registers these complexities in her collages, allowing us to engage in new ways of seeing failures and visions of our interconnected world. Tato's collages are a physical manifestation of reimagining what we take for granted by placing disparate images in conversation to produce uncanny new ways of seeing. Her journey has been one of dancing with instead of against failure, pivoting and redefining success on her own terms.